Welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody. Season finale for season 10. Holy cats. I'm Alicia. My name's Stacy. It is the end of season 10. And once again, the summertime in Wimbledon yep. is upon us. You guys love tennis stories, we can tell. So we have two tennis stars for you today. Y'all have wanted them for a while. We're bringing them together. Chris Everett and Martina. They have a fraught relationship, which is now a pretty solid friendship, but as different as they are, they might understand each other in a weird way. They're both phenomenal on the court. A little less phenomenal at love. A little less. A little less. <laughs> so these two made tennis super fun in the 70s and 80s. Um, what's Give me the highlights. Uh, Chris Everett, Amago. Gonna reintroduce that. Three times divorced. Really goes through something very identifiable after that last one. I think y'all will enjoy that story. And you this week, Martina Navratilova, who has had three galimony suits brought against her over the decades, basically because she was not allowed to marry people that she was in love with until very recently. It's weird, the hoops, right? So, yeah. So she ended up being not just a champion, but also kind of a tabloid hit for many periods of her life. Before we get started on the episode, I have the magic mirror. Let's pull it out and give a shout out to some of our new patrons this week. Big thank you to Heather S., Kelly O., Amaya B., Nell P., Lisa, Don A., Alex C., Monica A. We have some upgrades too. I don't always get to do these, but I want to throw these in for the big season finale. Trace A., Kristen H., Aaron P., Jenny W., Kat T. Thank you. We have a few new super supporters as well. We have uh, Juliet N, Crystal TC, Amy K, Aaron M, Guam Missy. Thank you for your super support. Thank you. All of our Patreon supporters, new and existing, we can't tell you how much we appreciate you. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you for coming back and listening to the end of season 10. Here on the Sunday feed. So grateful for you. Enormous thanks. It's the time to get this match started. I think maybe we need to go, go, go. Okay, Alicia, kick us off on our semi-annual celebration of Wimbledon. Do you mean serve? I (laughs) shall. Y'all, I love this story. Y'all have wanted this story for a long time. I'm delighted to bring it to you today. I have the story of Christine Marie Everett. Born December 21st, 1954, which means she is born smack dab in the middle of the cusp of prophecy. Oh my God. This is the Sagittarius Capricorn cusp covers December 18 to December 24. And whoa, these folks are known for their uncanny ability to see what's needed and actually deliver that. It's sunshine meeting practicality. These folks are ambitious and trustworthy not prone to make sudden moves. They prepare, they manifest, they control. And we're going to see this for a really long time with our profile today, at least in her tennis game, maybe not in her love game. (laughs) God bless her. I love her so much. She's an angel. But there's a reason listeners want this story (laughs) because it does fall into the trashy divorces moniker. But it's all middle-aged divorce. There's so much that resonates with this story. I think y'all are going to like it. Okay, Chris, Chrissy, born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She's a Florida girl. And the Everett family, mom is Colette, dad's Jimmy. These 
to <laughs> mom and dad, going to have five kids in a devout Catholic family. And Jimmy Everett just happens to be a professional tennis coach because hmm. he does that line of work after himself getting out of the tennis game when he retires because he's played as a kid, he's played in college, and he's played professionally as well. So all five Everett kids play and they all will have kid careers, junior careers, college careers, some professional careers. It's tennis is their racket. That's better. I was going to say family business, but yours is better. So Chrissy, as a small kid, Chrissy's always dancing. And then when she's like five or six, she gets really introduced to tennis and the world will never be the same. So this is a great time to talk about Imago. I-M-A-G-O. I've gotten a few emails about it this week. Like, Alicia, you talk about it. What the hell is it? Imago. <laughs> is a concept developed by Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, both PhDs, groundbreaking work. But Imago <laughs> is sort of this theory that you're always working out in relationships, a relationship that came before. You're fighting the ghosts of long ago in the current fight that you're having. And so is the partner that you're having the fight with. This isn't just in love couples, but it's in family, in work, in friendships. Like, And until you kind of work out who you're actually having the conflict with, because it's not the person that you're in the relationship with. You're having a conflict somewhere within yourself, typically parent-related. We see a lot of that in this, mm -hmm. where... It's sort of a way of looking at the patterns that are binding you, Correct. Is that Correct. Okay. It's it's this invisible thing that we all do. So Harville Hendricks creates this thing called Imago Therapy, which mirrors. It sort of teaches you a way to work out what you're living in the present based on all the things that are haunting you in your Imago closet, so to speak. Okay. So That's Imago. How does this relate to your subject this week? So it's all about dad for tiny, tiny Chrissy. Uh, there is a love-hate relationship that happens. This is from an L piece in 2011. Chris Everett says, I always idolized my dad. He was very hardworking, strict. I wanted him the beginning to get his praise and his affection, but I didn't get Chrissy, I love you. Chrissy, you look beautiful. My dad's approach to tennis was don't make errors, not that's a beautiful shot. Think that's not real warm and fuzzy is what I'm hearing. Well, yeah. And when we talk about her and her career, she's so driven and so focused on that, that it leads her to some truly interesting and possibly terrible decisions in her love life. But she gets it. Like in the fullness of time, mm -hmm. you get it. And she really has. Like she's a hero for every woman who's done the same thing. This L article continues. So when little Chrissy would complain about her father not giving her more love, her mother, Colette, always said, oh, that's just the way he is. And she also warned Chrissy, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. So Chrissy didn't say it. She just kept playing tennis every day. And then in eighth grade, Chrissy decides she wants to be a cheerleader. And dad says, you have to make a decision. 
Like you have an aptitude for tennis, but you can't do both. You've got to pick one or the other. And I think for dad's love, possibly, I don't know, that's just my conjecture. She's going to go ahead and choose tennis. And at the age of 15, Chrissy Everett stuns the world by beating the number one player in the world, Margaret Court. Hmm. I cannot tell you how much this, like, this was international right. news. Right. It's an enormous deal. And there's no stopping Chris Everett. In her 17-year career playing tennis, let's just talk some basic stats. She will win the Australian Open twice. She will win Wimbledon three times. She has six U.S. Open titles to her name. Chrissy will win the French Open seven times. If you're adding that up, that is 18 Grand Slam tournament titles. That does not include her three doubles Grand Slam tournament titles. And here's the thing that's going to stun you the most. Her winning percentage is a record not even gotten close to by any man or any woman in tennis. It is 90%. Wow. So like over a 17-year period? Over a 17-year period. She won 90% of... She won 90% of her matches. The total is 1,309 wins to 146 losses. Like she goes 125 games in a row without losing on clay. Like it was, you've never seen a player like her. And she's got this funny little backhand that everyone does now today. And she was determined. Okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) Part of that success. Amago, it all comes back around. Dad has coached her from an early age. And in that coaching, there is no emotion. The court is your job. You never let your opponent see how you're feeling. He puts her into this different brain space. And Chrissy is desperate to do anything she can to make her dad happy. She says she'll work harder to make him happy. Amog. The year is 1971 and Chrissy's breaking through. She's young and feminine, which is such a flip at the time. Because at the time, you've got Billie Jean King and women's livers, tennis players demanding justice for all. And here comes Chrissy Everett, like a breath of fresh air. She wears cute dresses from her sponsor and makeup and jewelry. And she's so feminine and cute. And young girls really identify with her. I'm sure. I'm sure. She's a much more relatable figure to... Mm -hmm tennis that's really trying to grow that game at at, she has an impact on the culture is what i'm trying to say and here she is a teenager and she's terrified and shy and insecure like with all these grown women like they hate me they hate me and i'm nervous and i don't know what a pro tennis player looks like but apparently i'm good enough to now be pro when i'm 16 and what the hell am i doing Mm -hmm. all the other players are like Who is this teenager wiping the court with us? And Billie Jean King is going to take a stand against all of them. And she's going to say to them, like, she's the future of tennis. Everybody, you need to be nice and get on board because this kid isn't going anywhere. Which Billie Jean (laughs) King, shout out. I believe she's going to center court, I believe. (laughs) That's it. Billie Jean will win that match against her in that tournament where that happens. But the Monday after the weekend tennis tournament. Every press crew 
shows up at Chris Everts High School where she is in the gym auditorium giving a speech to all of her classmates. And she's just like, I want to be a sophomore, man. What is, you know? <laughs> oh, God. It's terrible. But the path is set. Like, there's no yeah leaving her bright future back in that auditorium. Like, it's on. And she has this reputation being this sweet and innocent and... But when asked about her, everybody you ever talk to is like, do not be fooled by that. There's a tiger inside of her. She's called Remorseless, Little Miss Icicle. There's no showing emotion. That is her job. There's no showing emotion on the court. All business. There's no crying in tennis. (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and go back to that 2011 L piece by Steve Friedman. It really is good. In the fullness of time, Friedman writes, one thing she is not is Little Miss Perfect. The truth is she never was. I was labeled at a young age. Miss Unemotional, Miss Cool, she says. And that would carry over into my press conferences. I still have this image. I can't be controversial. I can't say things. She takes a deep breath. Being famous before you formed your personality before you have that self-esteem, is dangerous. Things obviously built up inside me. I competed and handled pressure well. That was my strength. But I suppressed things off the court as well, she says. This piece continues. It really was such insightful writing. Her legions of fans and the media people who covered her praised her politeness and gushed over her demeanor. She paid attention to them, She had always been good at paying attention. She was nice. She was polite. She was a liar. Somebody at a press conference would ask, how do you feel about your match? And I'd say my opponent played too well that this was her day. The real answer was I let her win the match because I was horrible and I was really bad out there. Even on the court, being good wasn't quite good enough. She had to be pleasing. She wore jewelry and nail polish and mascara. I wore ruffled bloomers. I wanted to be feminine. Female athletes were rare and considered masculine and not celebrated when I was growing up. She didn't complain, though. She barely had the vocabulary. I didn't speak what I felt. I didn't want to be controversial. I was the opposite of John McEnroe. John said, if I had been a little bit more like you and you'd been a little bit more like me, it would have been perfect. Finally, there were people who took care of her. This is Chrissy talking. When you're famous and number one in the world, you have a manager, a coach, someone handling your money, a secretary, people doing everything for you. They would just say, Chrissy, play your matches. We'll take care of you. I didn't have the tools to lead a normal life. I didn't do my wash. Entitled is not a very pretty word, but that was me. I had a sense of entitlement. Everett makes it clear that she's not complaining. I'm done with the pity party for me. I'm done. I'm lucky. There are people who have it a lot worse than I do. But she also makes clear, intentionally or not, that what was forged by her relentless training and incandescent fame, her determination to be not just a good girl, but the best girl, was not simply an intensely pleasant, nearly error-free athlete who seldom, if ever, insulted an opponent much less complained to a linesman. 
That's that that awkward. really is a huge contrast with uh, John McEnroe, isn't it? Right. Uh, the author continues here. Friedman continues. What also emerged was a beautiful young woman who craved male approval, an expert at keeping her needs to herself, an accomplished and successful champion who had very little idea of how to be alone. In, well, this all sounds great. <laughs> in many awful ways, and for all the wrong reasons, she was the perfect partner for a fine romance, and she had a few. Mm. Whoa. Like, that's a hell of a setup. So let's get to... Yeah, there's a real recipe for disaster here. I could not give y'all a better definition of Imago. That you're always working it until you work it out with the one who came, even though you're not working it out with them. It has nothing to do with them. It is... Ah. Chrissy has a first boo. You may have heard of him. His name is Jimmy Connors. Yeah. They're both young stars in tennis. Sure. And the drive in each of them is propelling the both of them to want to be number one in the world. Oh, I'm sure the tennis press loved that. Oh my God, the that. public and mm. the press just fascinated by the two of them together. The magazine article titles read, Love Match. Mm-hmm. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Of course they do. But they get, Chris just told you, like, it's not, I did not have the tools. Like, mm. your whole life is taken care of in a very different way. So they work out great for a minute. Mm-hmm. They get each other. They support each other. And she is so calm and cool and collected. And he is just so not. <laughs> so all of this hits fever pitch in 1974 when the two of them in the same year both win Wimbledon. Love match. The king and queen of the ball. That's it. Chris Everett will say that your first love stays with you. She is glad it was with him, but these two are not destined for the aisle. Although there was an attempt, they get engaged when she's 19, and the wedding is scheduled for November 1974, but that wedding does not happen. In the fullness of time, we have learned a little more, where Jimmy Connors will write in his autobiography in 2013 that Chris Everett was pregnant, and unilaterally decided to terminate the pregnancy, and Connors is upset, Chris Everett will respond to this quote as ex- as being extremely disappointed that Connors used the book to misrepresent a private matter. Hmm. But the 70s continue. As they do. Chris is lonely, and she has no close relationships, and feels empty, like there has to be more to life than just Winning every match I've ever played at tennis. Okay. She's going to date a lot, though. Jack Ford, president's son. Hmm. Also, Burt Reynolds. She goes on a date with him. He's a contender. God, Bert, what's the age difference there? Oh, a little bit. But okay. Burt Reynolds still interviewed as like, I, had a, I still have a huge crush on her. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Mary Carrillo, colleague player of Chris's at the time and world famous sports commentator, said you had the best seat in the house if you were sitting next to her in the locker room. Okay, this is my favorite quote. Dick Enberg, famous sportscaster, says about Chris Everett, it is said about her that the line is long, but it moves fast. (laughs) (laughs) I had a few of those single years. That's a lot of fun. It's just a good line. The line is long, but it moves fast. Anyway, by 1979, the line is stopped. And it is time for husband number one, British tennis player John Lloyd. 
Chrissy likes him and wants to meet him after reading an article where John Lloyd has written of his loneliness at being a professional athlete. Don't fall for it. (laughs) (laughs) She does. So Chris Everett gets a friend of hers to ask if he'd want to go out with her to tramp in London to go dance. And he said, yeah. And that was their first date. And they hit it off. She says what she didn't know then, she knows now. It was doomed from the start. Because he was on the men's tour and I was on the women's tour. And we never saw each other. I was married to my tennis. My aspiration was to become number one. I had no emotion left when I got home. That's all good for Chrissy, but here's what would have thrown me over the line. Because I saw this quote from John Lloyd, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> okay. Chrissy loses at Wimbledon in whatever round she goes out. And she loses. And John Lloyd is like, oh, babe, that's cool. We'll just cancel going out tonight. And Chrissy's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that, that's Cancel the, going out. It's I'm the perfect night to go out. I don't have to play tomorrow. Out of the tourney. I don't have to play tomorrow. We're in London. Let's uh-huh. go have a good time. We're young and in love and in London. What do you mean cancel going out? This is the thing that sent me over to the edge. John Lloyd says, I realized then that it didn't mean as much to women. That the game of tennis didn't mean as much to women because a man couldn't have gone out that night and like gotten over it like she wanted to. Because you have a bad day, John Lloyd, you're going to stay home and cry all night. Men are so emotional. Pratt. I don't know. Men are weaklings. Anyway. What? I'm just saying, like, (sighs) Chrissy and John do marry in Mm. April of 1979. She's 24. When she marries, she'll change her name to Chris Everett Lloyd. Mm Mm-hmm. And... This is the iteration I most remember Mm -hmm. from childhood. And then lose after 125 consecutive wins on Calais. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. By 1980, it's the first year she's not number one. And she'll say she was trying to find the right balance. When all of your emotions are into the game, there's not a lot left over for marriage. There is a brief affair that Chrissy will have with British singer and actor Adam Faith, which will split John and Chrissy up. They separate for six months a year. Like, they separate for a minute, but then they do reconcile and will write a book together. Carol Thatcher, the prime minister's daughter, actually writes it, but she will talk to the two of them. And these reviews from Amazon about this book, it's called Lloyd on Lloyd, are just precious, I tell you. Okay. Goodness. This is from Publishers Weekly. The darling of U.S. tennis fans from her first appearance in the big time at age 16 in 1971, Chris Everett ruled the women's tennis game throughout the 70s, a relentless machine determined to win. By contrast... Britisher John Lloyd is an enormously gifted athlete who is lackadaisical about his game and quickly becomes discouraged. (laughs) He is never ranked higher than 24th in the world. After the breakup of her engagement to Jimmy Connors, Everett married Lloyd. Because of their vastly different temperaments, their marriage has been rocky and involved a lengthy separation than a reconciliation. Thatcher, the prime minister's daughter, is clearly more interested in the couple's romance than in tennis, and she approaches their story like a fan magazine feature comes soap opera boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy wins girl. This book is out in 1986. They divorce in 1987. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The book cannot even save them. Is there something else happening? So they do divorce after 10 years of marriage. A separation, a reconciliation, a 
book tour later. Right. Doesn't happen. Well, I mean, she just doesn't take the game seriously, even though she's been ranked number one and he's topped out at 24. I, mean, I cannot. Stay home and cry all night. Don't go dance. I cannot. That, that's. Right. That's when I knew how I mm-hmm. cemented in my trashy heart about how I felt. About John Lloyd. Linker, John Lloyd. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I mean, he is lackadaisical, but apparently you got discouraged at your game. Well, yeah, that's why. And you're, I just. That's how you rocket to number 24, which is like great. (laughs) Great. But if you're married to the number one in the world, like, who's the slacker, bro? Like, I did see a funny Twitter the other day where uh, someone had said, like, we need to have a regular, normal, ordinary person alongside Olympic athletes to see what regular people look like doing this sport versus the cadre of, you know, here's the mass of professional athletes who are all amazing. Yeah. I think my five minute lap in the pool would <laughs> significantly. Good job, Stacy. NBC would be like, oh my God, when can we cut back? <laughs> we have None a schedule. Okay. I mean, it is because you're important and we're important, but so is Chrissy. We got to mm. get back to her story. Let's do that. So she's going to talk about both of her parents were very sad and disappointed after the divorce from John Lloyd happened. Chrissy will say, my mom wrote me a letter. My dad didn't talk to me for a while. Life is so funny. It was because my dad wasn't talking to me that Martina invited me to Aspen. Okay, so Chrissy's dad is mad at her for the divorce, and Martina, because they're getting along by that time in the greatest right. rivalry in sports history. Late 80s, yeah. yeah. Martina invites her out to Aspen. Uh-huh. I will have more on that. The New Year's Eve party at the Hotel Jerome in Aspen, Chris Evert meets Olympic ski champion, retired alpine skier Andy Mill as he walks in the room. And he sits down next to her and says, what are you doing here? She says she's there to ski. So the next day, he will ski backward the whole way down the mountain, holding her hands. (laughs) Okay. Isn't that amazing? They marry 19 months after meeting at the Hotel Jerome in Aspen. They marry in 1988. Thought you were going to say days. I'm glad they waited. No, I just, it's such a love. It's fantastic. So now Chris Everett's kind of ready for like a husband and family and she will retire in the following year, 1989, and proceed to do this whole wife-mother thing, right? Three sons follow, born 1991, 1994, and 1996, respectively. She'll start a tennis academy. They split their time between Colorado and Florida. They both affiliate in their respective previous careers. She commentates and they both kind of still have a foot in the game, but... This is home and hearth and family stuff, and it goes great. And then... (laughs) Well, here's something I thought actually was kind of awesome. Chris says she will retire on her own terms. She says she was burned out mentally. She wasn't in it. And this interview is nine years after she retires. So even with three children, she says nine years after retiring, I wake up every day and I feel like I'm on vacation. Just imagine that. That taking care of three boys under the age of 10 feels like vacation when your job is a professional tennis player or professional athlete. I can see. I mean, the endless travel, the constant like high stakes, like elite performance. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. 
kids are a piece of cake compared to ruling the tennis world. <laughs> okay, so things are great. And this is a good time to throw in this trashy bingo card repetition. Be careful of your couple friends, because this is where it starts to slide into trashy. Hmm. Andy Mill, good friends with Hall of Fame golfer, the great white shark, Australian Greg Norman. Greg, back in the day, meets Chrissy in like 1976, 1977 at a locker room while Greg is dating British tennis player Sue Barker. He and Chrissy kind of flirt on and off for years. Just want to put that out there in the universe, according to them. But once Greg Norman sees Laura Andrashi working as his American Airlines flight attendant on a flight one day, it's on. Greg Norman, Laura, marry in 1981 in July. They have two kids, a boy and a girl. Great. Greg Norman, Andy Mill, best mates. Mm -hmm. Couple friends. Everybody's good. Yeah. Chris and Andy, Mary in 88, two kids. Everybody's grieving. Everybody's doing their thing. Three kids. Both couples are doing great mm -hmm. on the surface, but then they're not. So, oh no, mm -hmm. what happens? Chris in 2001 actually has an ambulance called in a medical emergency with hypertension, which turns out to be anxiety. So from the early 2000s, she is on antidepressants. Her blood pressure is coming down like she's, there are already indications that she is struggling and the marriage is struggling. Right. So the vacation phase had not persisted. It, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's done. And friends will suggest like get, get therapy, like get professional help. And Chrissy says she's, <laughs> what champion needs a shrink who can't figure out their own problems? But by the time that it had taken a toll on her and her relationship with Andy Mill, they did see a therapist, but it's too late. And she'll say the counselor said, if you're in love with somebody else, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Okay. So everything that goes wrong, you would get four different answers between each person in both of these couples. Okay. It's going to depend on who you ask. Laura, Greg Norman's ex-wife. We'll make claims on national television that Chris Everett snaked her man. Chris Everett is a home wrecker. She'll say that Greg stole his best mate's wife and this love match that tore the two families apart. And oh God, she'll completely blame Chris Everett. Okay. I've never encountered a woman like that. Of course, my husband is blameless. We had a profession, like our marriage was perfect. Sure. I'm married to an Australian hero. I was deeply shocked. I thought we were happily married. Right. Greg Norman says, don't fool yourself. Our relationship was rocky for ages. We were seeing a counselor for years. The relationship goes bad because it's a two-way street. He will cite an incident in December of 2005, where I guess they're all at a ranch where Laura will ask him for a divorce. She will pack a bag and make this extravagant, like, exit in front of his parents. Like, I want a divorce. And she's like, aren't you going to tell them what I want? And so he tells his parents, hey, Laura wants a divorce. I'm going to drive her to the airport. So he says that's how it starts to unravel. Andy Mill will say, there's a lot to this story. I've got more words than I need. But Andy Mill will say 
that his best mate Greg got all involved in our personal life and our therapy sessions and then got involved in the relationship that I have with my three boys. It's all a mess. Okay. Chris Everett and Greg Norman are going to sit for an interview eight months into their marriage. Because they do get married. Oh, God. The marriage only lasts 15 months. Oh, but God. But this interview... Oh, no. I, oh, my God. These two cannot keep their hands off each other. She's caddying for him. He's always with her. Like, there's a lot happening in the demise of both of their relationships. But then there are these two very publicly breaking up and getting back together. And these divorces are very public, very ugly. After 18 years of marriage... Chris will file in Fort Lauderdale in November 2006, citing irreconcilable differences. You got it. The divorce the following month, December 2006, Andy Mill is going to get $7 million in cash, the $4 million home in Aspen, and several vehicles. Greg Norman, on his part, going to hand over a settlement to Laura of $105 million. <sighs> I mean, do these settlements speak to the disparate pay that female athletes and male athletes get? I don't know. I did not deep dive into the court records of either divorce. Let me just suggest that they might. I think Andy Mill was like, I'm not going to go away mad. I'm just going to go away. Right. But I mean, a $7 million settlement featuring featuring an elite female athlete and then a hundred and whatever million dollar settlement featuring an elite male athlete. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Greg Norman said it was worth the cost of the divorce. So. Sounds like that had run its course. (laughs) Once all these divorces happen, the two are free to continue their super public love affair. Right there in the public, acting like teenagers, they're besotted with each other. Hold on to that. Chris and Greg Norman get married on Paradise Island in the Bahamas in June 2008. More jet-setting around the world, giggling like teenagers. They cannot keep their hands off each other. Fifteen months of marriage, they announce. They are done. Their divorce is done by December of 2009. So people automatically have questions like, Hey, Chris Everett, Little Miss Perfect, you blew up your life for this? This is from a People article in 2009. Chris had a midlife crisis and came out of it totally turned on by Greg's celebrity gorgeous looks and bank account, says a South Florida friend of the couple. They didn't take the time to get to know each other. Both of them are narcissistic and want to control. In a celebrity marriage, only one person can be like that. Norman and Everts never set up home together. He stayed in his Jupiter Island manse called Tranquility while Everett remained in her nearly $3 million Boca Raton home. The couple would just sleep over at each other's houses. Mill, 55, who recently asked Aspen homemaker Deborah Harvick, 40, to marry him, tells People, Now that Greg is out of the picture, we're all fine and I'm ecstatic. Deborah and I are always there for the children and Chrissy and I are friends. (laughs) Mill spent three years anguishing over the betrayal by his wife and best friend, He added, this is the best quote in the whole damn story. Divorce is like a golf swing. It always makes someone happy. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Best quote in the whole thing. Wow. Follow up. Andy does marry Deborah, 
But that relationship has since ended in divorce, although the couple remains friendly and enjoys hobbies together. Okay, Greg Norman remarries too. In 2010, to interior designer Kirsten Kuttner Mm -hmm. in the British Virgin Islands on Necker Island. Apparently now she runs this clothing business and they jet set all over. Sounds like these two have really found each other. This comes back in when Chris Everett is talking about the Greg Norman split in this L2011 piece. Friedman writes, Some said it was a case of two big egos refusing to compromise. Some said Norman was more interested in being famous than in being a husband. Others said Chrissy couldn't stand a lesser athlete than herself getting more attention. Norman's golf career had a brief, remarkable resurgence shortly after he was hooked up with a retired tennis player. He literally almost won the 2008 British Open. Hmm. And he was like 50 or something, Mm -hmm. just not what golfers do. Back to the article. Ever didn't say much, but now she wants to. Quote, this is what Chrissy says. Was there a passion? Yes. Was there a love? Sure. uh, (laughs) Yes. But we had two big worlds. Honestly, we had different priorities. I want roots. I want to be with my kids, live in a nice, comfortable house and be able to do my work. One of us would have had to give up a big part of our life. I don't want this to be a slam on Greg, but our lifestyles were different. My priority was my kids. His priority was to build his business and travel. So after the split, Greg Norman remarries, Andy Mill remarries and divorces. Everett says, at least in 2011, that she hasn't been on so much as a date during that year and a half, and that's fine by her. She's not giving up on love, uh, but she says this time, I'm going to have a more independent relationship. If the guy's in New York, I'll fly there, he'll fly here. It's always difficult with strong, successful women. You don't want to be dominated, but you don't want to walk all over the guy. I think it'll come when I'm not looking for it, when I'm not trying so hard. So is she currently linked with anyone that you know of? No, not currently linked with anyone. And there is, goodness, just this best part. If I can if I can take a little license on the season finale yeah. and finish this out, because she's got some real words of wisdom here that I think are meaningful to a large portion of our trash pandas out there. I think they might be. Chris in this article really does take her knocks. She talks really honestly about this and says, basically, I married my affair. When Everett Norman divorced all too shortly thereafter, she fell apart. She thought about the huge mistake she had made and the pain she caused Mill, whom she described as my husband and best friend and soulmate. She thought about what she had done to her children. She thought about what she had done to Norman's ex-wife. The woman who was always in control, who always looked forward, had lost control, and now she couldn't stop looking backwards. My conscience and my guilt and my grief kicked in. I was a little bit of a mess back then. Friends tried to help. People would say, you got to get busy. You got to keep busy. But she didn't get busy. She cried. And she took to her bed and watched a lot of movies and read self-help books. And then she got better. She doubled her exercise. She practiced yoga. She read more self-help books. And she saw a shrink. In therapy, she realized she had misperceived her own feelings, elicited by the attentions of a man other than her husband. She realized that it wasn't love that she'd been feeling, but rather excitement at receiving attention and approval. Things she'd been searching for her entire life and had never gotten enough of. 
She'll say, when you go into therapy, you go back to your childhood. You realize it and you get over it. You don't continue that relationship into your next relationship like I did. Mago, y'all. That's me saying it, not her. She right, continues. Right. You don't look for that confidence from others. It wasn't a need for love because I had that. What I needed was approval, affirmation. I think that's probably why I always needed to be in a relationship. A lot of it was my neediness. In a way, I'd always gotten my way. I wasn't as independent as I should have been, a quality I wish I had developed at a younger age. It wasn't Andy. It was all me. I hadn't been alone since I was 21. I've had boyfriends and husbands. If I was an addict in anything, I was relationship addict. She really makes know now that that affirmation that she was seeking that she didn't know was missing wasn't going to come from having a new romance or a man flirt with her. My therapist told me when you're feeling down, be of service to people. So I went to my tennis academy, to the hospital. It builds back both on a sense of self-worth and of humility. Everybody took care of everything of me since I was 15 years old. Now I'm trying to take care of myself. I think that's just so apt. I'm going to go one more just because it's Chris Everett. Very wise in this. She gives some really good advice here. Well, and it's Wimbledon week. It is. Well, season finale. We do what we want. This episode's going to last as long as a tennis match. Okay. She'll go on to say, you may have youth and looks, but you don't have a clue. This is kind of about growing up and learning the lessons through therapy and middle age and mistakes, right? When you get older, you feel beautiful inside when you have that wisdom and you can teach others. That's when you feel beautiful. That's when I feel beautiful. As to why she's chosen to talk about all this now, she pauses a rare thing because the teenage ice princess The preternaturally laconic adolescent has grown into quite a chatterbox. That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that before. After pausing some more, she says she's talking because she hopes she might be able to help someone else who believes in fairy tales. Someone else who believes that love will conquer all, that romance will make a woman whole, or that keeping things in is a way of keeping things together. She would like to disabuse people of some dangerous notions. She says, I have something to say to women and married couples out there. I was with Andy for 18 years. It was a good, solid marriage. When we were growing apart, I should have nailed it right then and there and communicated, but I didn't. And when someone came into my life, I just left. I broke a lot of hearts. I broke Andy's heart and broke my kids' hearts. And I brought that into my next marriage those issues that weren't resolved. What I have to say is marriage is up and down. If you sense that you're drifting apart, you have to confront the issue then and there. You can't wait till five years later because then it might be too late. I don't know. In interviews after this, Chris Everett is going to bring a lot of light to menopause. (laughs) It was like in 2016 saying, I did strange things during Mm. that time. Yeah. And you don't, it's not talked about enough. Right. Chris and Andy remain great friends. That's her person. That's her kid's person. I don't know. This tied a lot of stuff together. There is such a thing as the episode in the fullness of time. Like when you know better, you do better. I don't think the world will ever not be fascinated with Chrissy Everett. Any trash cans I would award her, I would take them back 
just for the years and the work that she's done. No, I wouldn't take him back. She can take him back and put him on the shelf like I've earned every one of those trash cans and I, and I do better now. <laughs> that's actually a great trash can award. I mean, that's the thing. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm all for- Here are my trash cans. Cleansing your soul of your trash cans if you've learned the lesson. Right. Learn the lesson and do better. And, oh no, she's a fascinating character. Chris Everett, living life on her own terms. I can dig it. Yeah. Still going to the tennis academy four times a week, raising her boys. Oh, has recently signed on to Biden's plan to support transgender athletes. Oh, fantastic. So yeah, mm-hmm. Chris Everett. Great. Amago, Cusp of Prophecy. This story had everything. There was a lot there. And we're coming back with another one that has a lot there. So I'm going to lob it over to you. Will we come back from be break? Back after a break. <laughs> See you on the flip. Hey, trash pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and I don't know, exposing official corruption, all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? or a thriller you could only read during the day. The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. Stacy, your story this week has given me a chance to pull one of my very favorite songs out of the proverbial closet, M-A-R-T-I-N-A. Greatest in the world today. Greatest in... I. Thank you, Frank, for M-A-R-T-I-N-A. It's Frank with a P-H. Yep, I got Martina Navratilova. I'm so excited. Go. Go, go. This is a Wimbledon story. It's a Pride Month celebration, and it's a preview of our Trashy Breakups Wednesdays series beginning July 7th, all in one. Before Naomi Osaka, before Venus and Serena, there was a singular figure in women's tennis, Martina Navratilova. A Czech-born tennis sensation at the age of 18, she was defeated by Chris Evert in the U.S. Open semifinals and headed straight to a U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Office in New York City to ask for asylum from her then-communist homeland. Times were different, and she had her green card a month later. I know people who've waited wow. years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
To get into how exceptionally dominant Martina was on the court, in her career she won 18 Grand Slam singles titles, 31 major women's doubles finals, and 10 major mixed doubles titles. It's incredible. She holds the Open Era record for most Grand Slam titles won by a player, and among her Wimbledon achievements are nine singles titles, including six consecutive ones. Wow. She's the greatest She's in the world sort of women's of tennis. chewed through the 80s, basically. She's the only player in history to have held the top spot in both singles and doubles for more than 200 weeks. <laughs> and wow. she was the number one ranked singles player for 332 weeks of her career. Holy cats. Mm-hmm. Martina was also obviously and somewhat openly queer in sports in an era where the public and the press were both ridiculous about that. I will be sharing some of the incredible writing on this from the period because it's a time capsule back to the stupid. <laughs> There's a large cast of characters here. Oh, this is 80s lesbian trash. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you were into it, you this was your soap mm-hmm, opera. Mm-hmm. Okay, so large cast of characters. Lesbian novelist Rita Mae Brown. Oh, yeah. A prominent women's basketball player. A Texas housewife. Rita Mae Brown again. A bit part by celebrity divorce lawyer Marvin Mitchelson. <laughs> And even an honorable mention for now New York Times columnist, tech writer, Sway podcast host, and all-around badass Kara Swisher, who did some journalism on this weird tangle for the Washington Post way back in 1993. This story has everything. It kind of has everything. (laughs) But before we get into all of that, let's talk about Martina Navratilova's origin story. Born Martina Subertova in Prague on October 18th, 1956, her parents divorced when she was three and she and her mother relocated to a smaller town southwest of Prague. There would eventually be a stepfather, Miroslav Navratil, and when you add the feminine suffix ova to that, you get Martina Navratilova. Got it. By four, she was bouncing tennis balls on walls, and at seven began playing seriously, inspired in part by her grandmother Agnes, who had been a top player in the Czech amateur leagues back before World War II. You're kidding. Mm -mm. Wow. Her stepfather and mother, too, uh, were also super supportive. Uh, Stepdad would urge her to play hard. Play like a boy. You know, take the weird shots. Don't be afraid. Like, And he told her she was going to win Wimbledon one day, like when she was eight. You know, just like watching her play. So a different coaching experience little, than little different. Chris Everett's dad. A little different. The imago is different in this one. Whatever the source, young Martina certainly had a knack for the game. As a young teenager, she was good enough to be allowed to travel to a junior's tourney in Germany, where one of her teammates had an ABBA tape and they played the hell out of Dancing Queen and felt very grown up about it. In 2012, she told BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs with Kirsty Young about all the varieties of food that she had never seen before, like fresh pineapple when she finally got to Germany when she was like 13. Playing ABBA. (laughs) Dancing Queen. It's such a good song. She went on to explain how it was that she decided to seek asylum in the States. It was 1975, and the whole family had been allowed to leave the country to attend Wimbledon. They discussed defecting then, but her stepfather didn't speak English and was concerned that he wouldn't be able to provide for the family, so they didn't. Surprise! When they get back to Czechoslovakia, everybody was super surprised to see them because everyone, including the government, (laughs) had had assumed (laughs) that they were defecting. Oh, no. So the kind government overseers of the communist Czechoslovakia decided that Martina's excursions abroad were finished. But the U.S. Open was coming up, and the Czech Tennis Federation obviously wanted to send its very best, so a last-minute visa was issued for the travel. 
At this point, Martina knew that if she went to America and returned to Czechoslovakia, she might not be able to leave again. She talked to her stepfather about her options, and he told her she had to decide, and if she decided to be gone, she had to stay gone, possibly forever. He even told her that if he or her mother ever told her on the phone that she should come home, she had to ignore it because they were getting pressured, obviously, by the government. And how old is she? She's a t- what a choice to make as a teenager. She's 18. Yeah. Wow. This is how 18-year-old Martina Navratilova, fresh off a defeat to Chris Evert, who was already becoming her longtime tennis rival, went to an INS office in New York and sought asylum in 1975. She won Wimbledon for the first time in 1978, became a U.S. citizen in 1981. And I think here, in this late 70s, early 80s era, is a fine spot to park a trashy divorces depot, complete with tennis courts, <laughs> for Martina to sit at while we watch a series of trains trundle towards her. First up, Rita Mae Brown, whose 1973 novel Ruby Fruit Jungle was perhaps the first widely available coming-of-age story about a lesbian using Brown's own early life as source material. Born November 28, 1944, Sagittarius, to an unmarried teen mom, Rita Mae started life in an orphanage where one of her mother's cousins came and retrieved her. She took a radical path early, being expelled from the University of Florida at Gainesville, which was then segregated, for her activism on civil rights in 1964. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. She ended up in New York City, attending New York University, even though she was sometimes homeless, and basically spent the 60s and 70s pissing off other activists in the feminist movement and gay rights movements by insisting that they quit ignoring lesbian voices. She worked briefly for the National Organization for Women, but resigned in 1970 because of the group's apparent fear that it could become associated with lesbianism. Oh, no. Yeah, she has a great quote, something like, the only thing that can cause a collective heart attack at the board of now is to mention the word lesbian. (laughs) Anyway. It was a different time. 1979, she and Martina were attendees at the same luncheon, and for the next two years, they were each other's everything. Purchasing a 20-room mansion on nine acres overlooking the Blue Ridge Mountains outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. Horsey country. (sighs) They exchanged rings. They have about 12 years between them. And Rita May had recently wrapped up a relationship with writer Fanny Flagg. To Wanda. (laughs) Fanny Flagg, she of... Yeah, Fried Green Green Tomatoes tomatoes and and Whistle Stop Cafe. And other wonderful books fame. Mm Mm-hmm. So apparently two things happened to wrap up this relationship. First, as you covered in an earlier episode, Billie Jean King's relationship with her female secretary became public knowledge when the secretary sued Billie Jean and Larry King for a bunch of money and the house that she had been living in for a few years in 1981. This gave an opening for the tennis press, who are not stupid people, mind you, to begin asking more probing questions of players whose personal lives they had perhaps held back from the public. But this was 1981, and Martina's citizenship hearing was coming at them. She had revealed to a New York Daily News reporter that she was bisexual, but then asked that they hold that info until after the hearing. They did not. Oh, no. Yeah, she describes this as, like, something that she considers a massive betrayal. But Rita Mae Brown did not think that that was actually the big problem for them. Telling Stephanie Mansfield of the Washington Post in 1981, she fell in love with somebody else. It happens all the time. Oh. So yes, the second- The heart wants. What the heart wants. The second thing that happened is that Martina had met someone new, a trailblazing female basketball star named Nancy Lieberman, whom she promptly moved in with in Dallas. Nancy had earned a slot on the USA national team when she was just 17, and at 18, 
became the youngest basketball player in Olympic history to win a medal. Seriously? Mm -hmm, When the U.S. took silver at the 76 Montreal Games. She was a star player at Old Dominion, which had a hell of a strong run during her tenure there. And then she joined the Dallas Diamonds in the Women's Professional Basketball League. This thing folded not long after this. But for a moment, they were both just like top athletes in their sport. Like when they, yeah, when they met, it was, everything was all good. I will now share some amazing writing from UPI's July 31st, 1981 archives. Oh, good. Dallas. Martina Navratilova and Nancy Lieberman, two of the nation's top women athletes, are considering living together, a move that puts... A move that puts Lieberman in the position of having to prove she is heterosexual, a Dallas newspaper reported today. Oh my god. It continues. Navratilova, who Thursday was quoted in a copyright story by the New York Daily News as saying she believed a major sponsor of women's tennis is pressuring her to avoid public discussion of her sexual preferences, told Dallas Morning News sports columnist Skip Bayless Thursday she was unsure whether to move in with Lieberman, the Dallas Diamonds basketball star. Quote, I don't know if I should move in with Nancy because I don't want to implicate her, said Navratilova, the top money winner of the tennis tour so far this year. It's so silly. Guilt by association. If two gays live together, nobody thinks anything. If two guys live together, they don't either. We have one gay and one straight. What's the big deal? We were roommates. Martina continues. I like men. I guess I'm bi. I like both. I just have a better time with women, straight or gay. Basically because I don't have to go to bed with them. (laughs) Pretzeling. This is called pretzel. Lieberman told the news that she is simply a good friend who came into Navratilova's life when she needed one most, shortly after Navratilova's breakup with lesbian activist and author Rita Mae Brown. We're going to get into a Nancy Lieberman quote here, but I would like to note that the newspaper writers helpfully inserted the word lesbian or lesbianism in parentheses as as they thought the audience needed. Wow. So she says, I'm not saying it, and then parenthetically, lesbianism is wrong. <laughs> and the whisper really is what sells it. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's wrong, but I want to give her a fair chance of changing and seeing the other side, Lieberman said. I'm not here to force guys on her, but just to help her get out of that lesbian environment. If you don't know anything else, you can't give it a chance, she continues. She's been taken so much advantage of. People look at her like a dollar bill. I don't need her as a friend for her money or her name, and I'm probably the first person to be able to say that. Oh, the yikes. Nancy goes on to say, I guess I get myself in trouble because I try to do too much for people. I just want to help her, and if people think something else, that's their problem. I could prove my innocence, but why should I have to? <laughs> wow. That's I, amazing. Yeah, I believe in Martina's book, she expresses regret that they did this interview at all. Um, oh, I certainly, in, in hindsight, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. Yeah. Okay, so that is all terrible. Whatever the particular intricacies of their personal lives, Nancy became Martina's personal trainer, which was something that the young new American, fully relishing the opportunity to enjoy America's delicious bounty, was apparently in need of. In fact, Martina did not relish exercise the way one might assume an elite athlete must. And in her 1985 autobiography, Martina, she describes watching a Nancy workout in 1982. Quote, I saw her get out with one of her best friends and go at it tooth and nail for hours. Then they'd both come home and make lunch as if nothing had happened. To me, it... 
To me, it looked like World War Three. Hey, Mom had a sandwich. What were they thinking? <laughs> An ESPN profile of Martina says that Nancy's regimen, quote, hardened Martina physically and mentally, unquote, and that hiring coach Renee Richards, and this is so weird, Renee Richards was a trans tennis player yeah. who was outed by Tucker Carlson's father, who was a news broadcaster, which then required Renee Richards to sue for inclusion at the U.S. Open as a women's player, which she won. She won the lawsuit. She did not win the U.S. Open. Anyway, I was just like, wait, what? Okay. This story really does have everything. Nancy, Renee Richards, and a coach named Mike Estep were kind of the last bits of secret sauce that kind of let Martina come back to dominance. I think she got, I think she won Wimbledon in 78 strictly on natural talent. Like she, she was not working super hard at it, but like anytime somebody excels in sports, everybody else kind of rises to the occasion. Oh, Martina changed the game. For sure. But she also had to, she, like she got into a fight with Nancy because she didn't really have a practice schedule. She would just like go out and hit the ball around for an hour or so. And Nancy was like, you need to be playing tennis three hours a day every day, period. Like, this this is not, you're never gonna, like, be the world champion. Anyway. It was a pretty intense training program, more on spider webs that has to do with the rivalry coming Indeed. this Wednesday on Patreon. Indeed. Nancy, because she came out of basketball world, had a very different approach to, like, how you intimidate your opponents than was normal in, in tennis at the time. I don't know where they are now. So in 1982, Martina reclaimed the number one spot on the tour and mostly held it through 1987, which is yeah. just a remarkable run. This is what Martina's next girlfriend, Judy Nelson, wrote about the end of the Martina-Nancy partnership in her book, Love Match. Lieberman pushed Martina to become physically and mentally fit, but by 1984, Martina had gotten as much out of Nancy as she could. Oh, She had become number one in the world with Nancy's guidance and was able to retain her ranking, becoming more dominant each year. But perhaps Nancy had become overbearing, trying to turn Martina into a type of competitor that was counterintuitive to Martina. Suggestions made earlier by Lieberman, which once had been interpreted by Martina as productive, now seemed inappropriate. It was time to move on. Notice how she goes back and forth between Lieberman and Nancy in that paragraph. It's right. very, like... Interesting. How do I poop all over my ex's ex while also not revealing that they were a couple? Okay. <laughs> we get it, Judy. <laughs> Want Nancy to... Anyway, as far as I know, Martina and Nancy are still friends and they, they do charity things together. Like, Good for them. Martina's a lot chiller than you might think is one of my takeaways from this. Like, it, it sounds like she has okay relationships with her, at least some of her exes. Contra Judy Nelson's take, Martina is quite kind to Nancy Lieberman in her book, saying, no matter what has come between us, I will always say that Nancy Lieberman was one of the most important people in my life. She also talks, though, about how hectic her schedule felt under Nancy's kind of guidance. And eventually she just felt very controlled, both as an athlete and a business person. This is where celebrity divorce lawyer Marvin Mitchelson, who we covered a few weeks ago, comes into the picture. This pornographic bathroom wallpaper. Remember that Mitchelson pioneered the so-called palimony suit, where an unmarried partner would sue their ex for, in effect, divorce benefits after they broke up. In Martina's case, because she's had several of these over the decades, the press would adopt the much more fun term, galimony. <laughs> Oh, no. In any case, it appears that Nancy hired Marvin Mitchelson to pursue one of these suits, 
Although it looks like they settled privately and it never went to court, several media sources note that Martina made a big payout to Nancy, and Paragon of Truthiness, page six, <laughs> says, quote, Marvin Mitchelson told publicist Cy Preston, who represented him, that Nancy showed him torrid love letters Martina had written her as evidence of promises made. Torrid. So there's a tabloid game of telephone for you. Now that Martina had relocated to Dallas as home base in her itinerant tennis life, another chance encounter would become important. At a doubles championship in Fort Worth in 1982, an 11-year-old ball boy thought it would be cool to introduce his mom to one of his tennis heroes. Had that go. (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) This was Judy Nelson, blonde Fort Worth suburban mom, practicing Methodist, 1965 national maid of cotton. She's a beauty queen. And Howdy Week Queen at Texas Christian University, who was married to a successful doctor with whom she was raising two sons. Two years later, in 1984, with Nancy now fully out of the picture, Martina was in Dallas for another match but hurt her hamstring during practice. There was a lunch, another There's one. There's always a lunch. Probably all at the Whistle Stop Cafe, where she and Judy reconnected. And with the injury, Judy and her husband, Ed, offered to let Martina stay with them while she recuperated. Oh, that's so nice. She accepted. We have a nice guest house. You can stay there. She stayed in one of their kids' bedrooms. Oh. Here are some excerpts from Judy Nelson's book, Love Match, Nelson versus Navratilova. Martina was just a normal house guest. She would come and sit down and have dinner with us. Sometimes she would cook dinner, pasta, or something. Everybody liked what she fixed. I wasn't uncomfortable being at the dinner table with Martina, Ed, and the boys. I was just glad she was there. It was easy to be around her. It wasn't that complicated yet. I just wanted to be around her, and if that was the only way we could do it, we would make it work. Martina took to the domesticity, and it was soon apparent to both where things were headed. Uh, Judy, it always? I mean... Judy wrote, It was my habit to stay up late at night after everyone had gone to bed. Martina went to bed early each night, but when she would hear me doing things around the house, she would wake up and then we would spend isolated hours together just sitting and talking about our feelings for each other and where that was leading us and could we make it work. We were both concerned with the effects that the relationship would have on the children and my parents. We knew we needed to be together. You can't just change your life like that. Martina was concerned, too. Her friends were advising her about the problems she would encounter by getting involved with a married heterosexual woman. The heart wants. We talked for hours each night. As I remember, the practical issues were the most important ones. Our discussions were not always romantic. One day, Ed, Dr. Ed, came home from work early and found the pair just talking. Like, literally, like, just talking. Nothing untoward happening, but he suddenly understood that his wife was in love with someone else. Oh, no. Their marriage had been rocky for a while. Apparently, Ed kind of had a wandering eye, and Judy had told him earlier, pre-tennis pro houseguest, that she was not in love with him anymore. Enter Kara Swisher. (laughs) That took a turn. (laughs) Who wrote a piece on their breakup for the Washington Post in 1993, as mentioned. Quote, they debuted as a couple at the French Open, but were really at center court during Wimbledon 1984. It hit big because of Nelson's married status and stunning looks. Nelson struggled with her family, who were all shell-shocked after she left. Her younger son, Bales, then lived with her and Martina in a house Navratilova bought, while Eddie stayed with his father. She was the happiest she's ever been, involved in a relationship that satisfied her, recalls Bales, now 20. I probably remember three times seeing them fight, while my parents fought all the time. Both Bales and Eddie consider Martina a step-parent and call her a best friend. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. 
The piece continues, The family chugged along as Martina, the breadwinner, enjoyed her best career years ever, and Judy moved easily into wifehood by helping run the Navratilova machine, doing everything from cooking to ironing to greeting the fans. She even designed tennis clothes for the star and had them made by a company they owned together after Navratilova lost a number of endorsements because of her sexuality. Nelson says they even had a secret sign of holding the last two fingers on their hands and a signal that meant, I love you. Within months, on November 17, 1984, they shared a private commitment ceremony in an empty church in Brisbane, Australia. Exchanging rings, they vowed to stay faithful forever till death do them part. They sealed it in a non-marital cohabitation agreement prepared by a paralegal two years later. All the hoops that couples who just want to love and live and be married together had to go through. Well, that agreement, that written agreement, that they also videotaped themselves signing, mm -hmm, would become the source of perhaps Martina's most devastating Gallimony episode after Martina walked out of the couple's Aspen home in February 1991. After seven years together, Judy fired back with a palimony suit grounded on the terms of the non-marital cohabitation agreement just ahead of Wimbledon 1991 in a move that seriously pissed Martina off, both for what it was and for its timing. But Judy had reason to feel poorly used. First, she says she hadn't seen the breakup coming, although the last couple of years of their relationship had not been as solid as the early days. Second, Martina had done what divorcing people do and canceled all of her credit cards, health insurance, and locked Judy out of access to bank accounts and such. Oh, no. Yeah, this was to try to force her into a light settlement, apparently. Anyway, Judy wanted half of the five to (laughs) nine million. (laughs) Judy wanted half of the five to nine million that Martina had earned during their relationship, and Martina was absolutely outraged. Her team painted Judy as a gold digger trying to take advantage of a rich celebrity, while Judy countered that she had been Martina's on-the-road wife and business partner for years and was, in fact, the one being taken advantage of. In 1992, Martina ran out of patience for the legal expenses of taking this to court and agreed to a settlement. Terms are private, but Judy did get the Aspen house they built together. It was the smallest of the three houses to choose from. And one report put her cash settlement at about $3.5 million. She would also auction items from their relationship, netting forty grand. No. And go on to write two books. One, Love, Love Match, Match. Yeah. about her experience with Martina. And um, the second is sort of more about her personal transition to identifying as a lesbian. None of that is the kicker, though. The kicker is how Kara Swisher opens that amazing Washington Post piece titled Tough Match for Martina back in 1993. Oh. Wintergreen, Virginia. So much in common. Rita Mae Brown loves to tease and Judy Nelson loves to be teased. Both... <laughs> Both are in their late 40s. I just remembered the kicker. (laughs) Both have an intense passion for horses and polo playing. And both are probably the best known ex-lovers of tennis superstar Martina Navratilova. And finally, the extra little twist. Brown and Nelson are now together. Introduced by Navratilova herself. Got it? A spectacle fit for the National Enquirer. Lesbians in the 80s, six degrees of separation. It was the the golden era. Yeah. Rita Mae Brown wrote the intro. To Judy Nelson's book about her relationship with Martina. Like, the pure delight that must have been felt. So apparently during all of the legal wrangling with Martina, Judy would go to Virginia to ride horses at Rita Mae's place. According, well, like you do. 
According to Swisher, they now share a life in Afton, Virginia, on Tea Time Farm with 21 horses, 8 cats, 6 dogs, and an iris purple Ford pickup with a Polo One license plate. How do you say you're a lesbian without saying you're a lesbian? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That was a long time ago. They are not still together, as far as I know. But that is not even the last Gallimony suit Martina got hit with. Oh, no. I believe the problem is her approach to breakups, which I think Rita May describes best by saying it is the Mario Andretti school of departure. Put the pedal to the metal and get the hell out of Dodge. Well... Rubs people the wrong way. Sometimes it does. <laughs> so her final galimony suit was brought by Tony Layton, who also left her husband and spent a further eight years with Martina in the 2000s. She sued after Martina dumped her in January 2008. And after two years of legal squabbling, Page Six says they settled the suit for around $3 million. Wow. Martina does seem to have finally like found the one and settled down. She married Russian model and nineteen like nineteen ninety Miss USSR Julia Limigova in December twenty fourteen. As far as I know, they're still together and wonderful. Hopefully, incredibly happy. Mazel. Friends, I feel like Martina's professional accomplishments are all the more remarkable for all of this drama. In 2005, Tennis Magazine named her the greatest female tennis player, nineteen sixty five to 05 edging out Steffi Graf for the honor. In 06, weeks before her 50th birthday, she won her last major title. Unbelievable. Mixed doubles at the U.S. Open 32 years after winning her first Grand Slam title. She is the greatest in the world of women's tennis. As we see, she's been a heartbreaker right alongside being a trailblazer as an athlete and activist. She spent years dominating her sport without her family in the stands cheering her on. They weren't allowed to leave Czechoslovakia. They would drive to a border town on the edge of Germany because the Czech television would not show. Like after Martina defected, they would not show her <gasps> matches. Really? Yeah. So they had to go like get in, in range of German television to watch. That's incredible. It sucks. So after her raw talent took her to the top, she learned how to do the work to achieve continued excellence. And by being willing to be fairly candid in the media, she became an icon for generations of gay kids, as well as tabloid fodder. Uh, I will say I'm aware that Martina has made some negative statements about trans athletes in elite sports that have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And rather than argue with her on that, I instead choose to close out Pride Month by giving a shout out to Kiwi weightlifter Laurel Hubbard, who will be the first openly transgender athlete to compete at the Olympic Games when she reps New Zealand in Tokyo later this summer. Fantastic. Best of luck to you, Laurel. We will be cheering you on from here in Atlanta. So what I would like to do for trash cans is give the entire decade of the 1980s trash cans. <laughs> Perfect. Or maybe just fill a closet full of trash cans to represent the 80s and early 90s. I'm for it. It's a mess. Everyone happy Wimbledon. Happy Pride. Stacy. that was an amazing story. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Amazing. I mean. Love this week. Greatest in the world today. <sighs> That's it. For season 10 of Trashy Divorces. That's a wrap. By far the most daunting season we've done yet. <laughs> Thank you all. Everything going on. Holy cats. We made it through. We're on the other side. We're at the end of season 10. Thank you, y'all, for listening and supporting us and coming to tune in to trashy royals we're going to be starting what trashy breakups when july 7th it'll be our wednesday drop for season 11 it is and we'll be back with season 11 regular trashy divorces on july 11th season 12 i don't even know anymore 
No, season 11. Okay. Season 11 on July 11th. See? That's mm. easy to remember. Okay. We are going to do a Martina and Chris Everett greatest rivalry in sports history follow-up on Spiderwebs this week. We're also closing out May in Monaco with a double header <laughs> of James Bond and Ian Fleming. That's over on Patreon. Yeah. And we're wrapping Trashy Royals this week on Wednesday with Trashy Breakups following July 7th. If you need more trash candy in the meantime, where can you go? Patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. Or check out a few free episodes at bit.ly slash Trash Candy. We're going to be changing those out, so be sure to check on that in the next few days if you like those free ones over there. Yep. Thank you for your time and attention and trashy hearts and being awesome. We can't wait to be back with you for season 11. In two weeks, we are off next Sunday. That's it. Season 11 on July 11th. See? Just making it clear. Spiderweb. Enjoy your Independence Day, Americans. Oh, yeah. And until we talk again, keep those hands clean. Smack that ball around. (laughs) Keep your hearts trashy. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Love y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.